Matthew 4, 12 to 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to begin, as I normally do, with a question to get us thinking. And today, it's, it's about your, just how social you are. Uh, how open are you toward new people in general? How, how open are you towards new people? And I was debating whether I should ask, how open are you to new people or how open are you to different people, people different from yourself? And, and oftentimes, new people are different from you, and that's why it's hard to be open to new people. Um, but this is important because uh, one of the, the benchmarks of the gospel, when we are receptive to the gospel, it, it makes us more and more uh, open to people. Now, for some of us here, as we think about how open we are towards new people, some of us are as open as your social skills will let you, right? And, and if you don't have good social skills, then you'd rather just not have to uh, con- uh, just meet people and, and work through all that. Uh, but even for some of us, myself, actually, if it's, people say it's hard to believe, but it's 20 years of pastoral ministry that has built this muscle. I'm actually at heart a hermit, okay? And if it wasn't for meeting Linda in my life, the love of my life, I'd probably be on some island with just my bike and some books and just, you know, doing life by myself. But, but through Linda and pastoral ministry, I've really built social skills, and, and so people are surprised when I say, they say, or they learn that I'm introverted because I'm, I've developed some decent skills with people. Now, some of us, we're open to new people because we see opportunity, uh, they maybe, uh, you know, in terms of business, they, they are dollar signs. They are new networking and new potential for your company or department or for you as you're trying to climb the ladder. A certain person at the company or at your workplace might uh, represent a, a promotion or, or someone you can curry favors from. For some of us, we're open to new people because it's out of principle. You know, no matter what your personality type is, you know, this, I'm a human being, I want to be contributing to society, and so it's good to be a kind human being, no matter how challenging it is for me. And so out of principle, you are open to new people. And for some of us, I mean this not in a pejorative manner, but um, as a compliment, some of us are true hippies at heart, and we really believe that we are all one, and, and we are all one connected universal family. And so when you meet someone from uh, across the world, who is the most different culture from you, different ethnicity, different skin color, different smell, different foods. you just like brother from another mother, right? Or sister from another mister. And and you just have that open heart towards that person. Now, I I start off this way, to just get our brains turning this way, because as I said, 
a benchmark, a benchmark effect of the gospel of Jesus and his message on a receptive heart is that your heart will grow bigger for people. You know, this is a safe place of grace, and I'm willing to say even now as a 44-year-old, having gone on uh, my first major overseas mission trip this past summer as a middle-aged man, family man, I realized my heart had grown smaller than when I was younger and single towards new people, being in a different culture. And the gospel re-challenged me that, Albert, there, there's, your, your heart has shrunk a little bit, and, and your heart now has to grow bigger again. And a benchmark effect of the gospel on a receptive heart is a bigger heart for people. Now, the theological reason behind this is because God is the great capital O other. He cannot be more different from you and me. We're finite. He's infinite. We're broken. And, and even on our best days, we still have mishaps. But He is perfect and He is perfectly holy we, we are imperfect in our love and patience and kindness and self-control and so forth, but God is perfect in all His perfections. And so God is the great other, but who not only reaches out to humans who cannot be more different, but even becomes the lowercase o other. He, Jesus became human. He was perfect God, and He found Himself humbled in human form, and He had two uh, natures, one divine and one human, found himself as a little babe. And why? To demonstrate God's heart of love to humanity. So today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to summarize the big point of the passage in a prayer because prayer is where uh, the rubber of faith begins to meet the road of life. When, when you, by faith, begin to talk to God to listen to him. And, and so I offer this prayer that you would get the gist of this prayer and pray this, pray this in your own life. Lord, keep stretching my heart for the outsider. That's just a synonym for new people, people different from me. With Jesus Christ's heart for me, the once but no longer outsider. Every Christ follower needs to perpetually remember that. That you were once an outsider, outside of God's family, outside of His grace, but He, the great other, the capital other, reached out to you and I, the, the lowercase other, and brought us in through Christ. So what I want to ask for uh, the remainder, the majority of the remainder of the sermon is, what does Jesus Christ's heart for the outsider look like? I, I think today as Jesus kicks off His ministry, that's the gist of today's passage. We're going to get a glimpse into Christ's heart for the outsider. And so diving right into the text now, first, Christ's heart for the outsider, it's first motivated, it's powered by grace. I gave you kind of a short list earlier of how you and I are motivated to be open to new people, and grace transcends all that as a motivation. Christ's heart for the outsider is motivated, it's powered by, it's fueled by grace. Where do we see this? Picking up in verse 12 of Matthew's narrative, now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And right in that phrase, John had been arrested. It's easy to just glance over that, but in, in those four words are packed a lot of God moving through history. 
And really we see where a period in God's plan, a period of God's law and having to work for our salvation as if we could, coming to a clear end. And now God's grace beginning. Where John failed, where John could only go to a certain point and his ministry stopped, Jesus' ministry, His final new covenant, His new deal between God and Him so that He can bring man into reconciliation with God began. Now let me liken it to this. Have you ever noticed in history uh, that certain people symbolize certain ideas or messages, even more specifically hope? Uh, Just last night, I was watching um, a bit of the Raptors game with my son. And, and Kawhi Leonard last year represented hope for Toronto. And he delivered. He was almost like a little basketball messiah for Toronto. And while we were watching, uh, Christopher, my son, he sighed, Dad, I miss Kawhi. <laughs> right? And right there I started feeling a little angry as a dad. I'm going to write Kawhi a letter. <laughs> right? And now Kawhi represents hope for the Los Angeles Clippers. Similarly, perhaps you recognize these Three uh, beautiful female faces here. Rose Wilder Lane, who's most well-known for her Little House on the Prairie uh, series. Um, Isabel Patterson, Ayn Rand. These were three women who represented free thinking and the strength of women and liberty. And three women who stood out, especially at a time where it was still more chauvinistic and, and, and women weren't as recognized. And so they represent a certain uh, strength for women. And of course, many of us know, especially here in the West, Martin Luther King Jr. Just, I'm just giving an example of, of a human being that represents a certain idea, a certain message and hope. And so similarly, if you just stay on that line of thinking, John the Baptist represented, even in Jesus' eyes, the impossible law. The, the law of God that He gave to His people, uh, what we call the Torah in Hebrew. But basically it was a system. If you are going to be reconciled to me, then you have to fulfill all these stipulations. You have to be ceremonially clean, spiritually, religiously clean, morally clean, civilly clean. But even the New Testament spells out clearly, it's impossible for anyone to uphold that perfectly until Jesus Christ. And so John represents as far as God's first part of his plan to save us could go. But really, it was impossible. It was an impossible law. And Jesus, he represents God's final chapter, this free gospel of grace. And Jesus himself fulfilling all righteousness of this impossible law. Because Jesus, our faith is that he was perfectly divine and perfectly human. And in that combination, he was perfectly sinless. He became the perfect representative for you and me, obeying God's commands and requirements fully. Now let me elaborate on that a little bit more. See, this impossible law, what it represents, what John represents, is this clawing to get onto the inside, to to be counted right with God, to be counted in God's good graces, His favor. But really, it's a clawing. It's a banging on the door of heaven and having no one answer because we all fall short of this impossible law. 
So even John being arrested first on a grand sort of, I know it's a bit abstract, but, but looking from a, a, an eternal perspective, it's a symbolism, it's a representation that John could only go so far. And even King Herod, the king of the people of God at that time, of the Jewish people, rejecting John. Rejecting God in this sense. And what Jesus now represents is this opening up the doors of heaven wide. And he's going to begin walking resolutely towards God's plan to complete the possibility of inviting the outsider in. Now, let me translate that even more to 2019. The reality for you and me, and I'm sure if we all had a chance to just reflect and observe, we would all come to this observation and and, and agree that this is what reality is like. We live in a self-performance-driven world. At your job, at the end of the day, it's your neck that will be on the line for your performance or for you missing a deadline or for you not performing. Even at home at times, the way we raise our children, you know, it's from a good heart wanting to discipline them, wanting to teach them uh, good life skills, but our homes can become performance-driven. And even children can subtly receive the, the, the wrong message that I'm only loved if I can get certain grades, if I can only score that goal you know, on my team, if I can only keep my room to a certain orderliness. The reality of the world we live in, it's, it's a self-performance-driven world. And your worth, your validation, it all depends on your self-performance. Now this makes complete sense from a Christian perspective because even going back to the very beginning, the first covenant that God enacted with his people was performance-driven. To Adam and Eve, if you just obey this one command to not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, then it'll go well. It depended on Adam and Eve's performance. And on and on through history, even the law, the impossible law, it's a performance-driven law that you have to meet these stipulations to be reconciled to God. But now imagine, imagine, this will be hard for us to imagine because it's so far out there. Imagine living in an other performance-driven world. What I mean by that is your promotion, your increased salary, your being affirmed and validated, your being loved actually depended on someone else's performance. Now, in some ways, that, that, that does happen. You know, if you're the manager, then if the manager does well, then it trickles down to the department, right? So in some sense, it's true, but at the end of the day, the manager is in it for themselves. How often do you come across someone who is above you who says, you know what, I want to sincerely, if you had an x-ray vision into my deepest heart motives, I want to do this for you. I want to do well so that you can get promoted, even if I get demoted so that you can get promoted. I can't remember the last time I heard of a real life situation like that. But imagine if, if our world was and other performance-driven, where your success depends on someone else's success. And that person, that other person, sincerely did their best for you. See, what Jesus is beginning to unpack and, and, and bring in, a, just to begin to write a new chapter in the history of the world, is that everyone's performance, you and I, it can depend 
on his performance. Because he's the one person who can perform God's requirements and obey perfectly, sinlessly. So first we see that Christ, he was fueled by, he was motivated by grace. He was the great other who came to this world truly out of love because John, even John, even in Jesus' words, the greatest prophet, even greater than Elijah and Moses, he was the final great prophet before Christ. But even he had a limit. His ministry, his mission could only go so far. It fulfilled a purpose in God's plan, but it had an end. And now Jesus began the final chapter of grace. And so what that means for you and me then as we're asking, what does Christ's heart for the outsider look like? First, it's fueled, it's powered, it's motivated by grace. And now a characteristic is that we see Christ, Jesus Christ, he steadfastly pursues the outsider. Where do we see this? First, picking up again, verse 12, then when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, this word withdrew, we need to not misunderstand. Jesus is not scared of what's going on. We see from the Gospels, we put all the puzzle pieces together. John was baptizing people and he was uh, gaining a following. And then Jesus started baptizing as well. It's not that they were in competition. But as John was arrested and it was closer to uh, the capital of Israel uh, where there would have been more people and it was more politically, religiously uh, intense of an environment there. And so Jesus, the reason why he withdrew is not because he was scared of also being arrested, because we know that he would resolutely come back three years later and go right into Jerusalem for the very purpose of getting arrested and for the very purpose of being tried and knowing that his final destination on earth would be the cross to die for the sins of humanity. We know it's not because Jesus was scared, but he knew that this wasn't his timing yet to be arrested. He knew he had to walk away from this political, religious tumult and that his time was three years later. All the more we know that Jesus wasn't afraid because who arrested John? It was King Herod. We won't get into all the details today of why that happened. But Jesus, all the more, withdrawing into Galilee, which was northern Israel, was effectively going into the heart of the lion's den. Why? Because the king, Herod, who arrested John the Baptist, that's where he lived. He was actually going closer to the one who arrested John the Baptist. So it's not that Jesus was afraid. This was strategic. This was intentional. To give you some idea of it, the, the, the first star that you see here at the bottom That's approximately where John the Baptist was arrested, where he was doing his ministry, where Jesus came to be baptized, and it's close to Jerusalem. And and, and like I said, it was much more of a politically and religiously intense area where people are talking about, and the tumult was just thick in the air. And with Jesus withdrawing to Galilee, we can't overlook this as well. It's easy to glance over this, but when you really try to Put yourself with your imagination and with the facts and so forth into the storyline here. Jesus walks that arrow. That's not his exact path, but the general direction to the north. That was the area of Galilee. And he ends up, first he visits his hometown, Nazareth. Just as a side note, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then he grew up in Nazareth. It's kind of like me. I was born in Montreal, but 
came here to Toronto when I was four, and, I, and Toronto is my hometown. It's my Nazareth, so to speak. And then he situates himself in Capernaum. Now this, I want you to catch this. This is 163 kilometers from uh, just a direct beeline from around Jerusalem to Capernaum. And the average person walking five kilometers per hour, that's what Google says, uh, that's about 32 hours of walking. I think that the average, you know, just right-minded human being probably will split up that into eight-hour walking days during this time, probably. And so imagine Jesus walking in sandals, the, the human Jesus. And he knows, okay, now's not the time for me to be arrested. And John's ministry, it could only go so far. And all the more reinforcing. Imagine all the quiet time he had, just a man in his thoughts. And walking those four days. Uh, picture Terry Fox, if you will. Terry Fox jogging for a mission, for a cause, for a love for fellow cancer sufferers. And being resolute to cross land for that cause, all the more our Savior, the human Jesus, humbly walking this long distance, probably traversing mountain sides as well, probably on edge, are there any marauders and people who will, who will try to rob me? And all the while thinking, I know why I'm withdrawing from this area into Galilee. It's because God has called me become the sacrifice for sins of all humanity. And this will certainly happen. I will come back to this place three years later. And it will end in crucifixion. See, this is what I mean by Christ. What's his heart for the outsider? I want you to see that he has this steadfast love. This steadfast pursuit. You picture Terry Fox, just his steadfastness. Every ounce of pain he might feel in his leg because of the cancer. But a steadfastness to keep moving forward because of his love for fellow cancer sufferers and belief in the cause. All the more, infinitely more amplified, our Savior, a steadfastness to resolutely walk up towards Galilee. And not only the steadfast heart of, God, of Jesus, but of God himself from, from the highest vantage point. We pick up in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What, what does Matthew mean here? First of all, Isaiah, approximately 700 years prior to Jesus, and God inspired Isaiah with a vision of the future and, and inspired him to pen it down, to record it on a scroll. And he envisioned that one day this territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, Zebulun and Naphtali were one of the two sons of the twelve of Jacob who became Israel. And from Israel came the twelve tribes of Israel from those twelve sons, their descendants. And so that family grew into a huge nation. And Zebulun and Naphtali, each of the sons were bequeathed a certain area of the promised land. And so this area is speaking of the land that Zebulun and Naphtali, the two sons, were bequeathed. And it became the area of Galilee. And so Isaiah foresaw 
that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Why Galilee of the Gentiles? If you don't know what the word Gentile means, it basically means non-Jew, but basically, in more even understandable terms, uh, modern-day terms, just multi-ethnic. Every other ethnicity and culture other than Jewish. And so Galilee, the territory of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, had become a multicultural area. Why? Because first, Zebulun and Naphtali, when they first went to possess that land, uh, they didn't expel and evict all the foreigners as they were instructed to. We'll get into that another day. That's a topic for another day. But basically, they began to intermarry, and so even that area became very multicultural right from the get-go. Again, we don't have time to get into this today, and I know it's going to open some can of worms for some people, but basically God, he frowned upon that. And he forewarned them that if you continue in this way, then there will be other nations that come and ransack you, that invade you and take you exile. And what Isaiah foresaw came true. Assyria came in as, as an instrument of God's judgment. And the way they entered into the promised land was through the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so these people were the first to feel the brunt of that assault of Assyria. I had the opportunity once to visit uh, Sahalin, which is uh, a Russian island. And, and if you visited any post-communist country, you feel the, 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 just the, the residue depression, even in the buildings and, and how the, the places have not developed. You feel the, the residue darkness and depression. And so this is what Isaiah is, is looking forward to that this invasion will come. You'll be the people, the area that ref- feel the brunt of this assault and the violence and people being ripped and uprooted from their land and being taken exile. And that's why he continues to say, but this people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned. He's foreseeing Jesus now beginning this wonderful new chapter of grace, going up to Galilee and doing the bulk of his ministry there, and now being this beacon of hope. And so even from God's vantage point, from eternity to eternity, through centuries, God's steadfastly unfolding and executing his plan of redemption. That is love. That characteristic of steadfastness and faithfulness, fidelity to his plan. And from the beginning, even through Isaiah, 700 years prior, what Isaiah is basically saying, God's heart ultimately is for the outsider. God's heart is ultimately for even those unlike himself, even those who aren't Jewish. His plan really ultimately is for the whole world, for every culture, for every ethnicity, for every skin color, for every uh, smell and food and, and what have you. And as Jesus is walking those 163 kilometers, I'm pretty sure that was replaying in his mind. I'm here to demonstrate God's immensely wide, deep, and high, and uncontainable love for the whole world. And I'm going to be this light. 
But finally, in today's passage, how do, what does Christ's heart for the outsider look like? It's not just a heart. It's not just good intentions. But Christ invites the outsider in. And we see it in this last verse. From that time, right? From that time. In Matthew's eyes, John the Baptist's ministry has ended. It's gone as far as it could. And now Jesus' ministry, his public ministry is beginning. And he is about to herald and announce with joy and gladness this wonderfully inviting message that God's heart is for everyone, is for the outside. He wants to bring you inside into his family, to be reconciled to him again and to begin to live the life that he always meant for us. And so Jesus picks up, he preaches the exact same message, but now with the twist of grace. Now Jesus can preach this all the more, the same message that John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He can preach it with the greatest authority because now he's the one who can actually make this happen. That no longer are we just clawing and scratching on the door of heaven trying to repent, trying to feel remorse, and trying to get on the treadmill of self-performance and to, to try to be a better person, to try to volunteer more, to try to hold my tongue, to try and try and try and try and try and just get tired and to feel guilty and more shame. No, now Jesus can preach this with the fullest authority because he's going to provide the resources, the means for our hearts to be transformed from the inside out. Remember, repent. I know it's an ugly word, if you don't know the history of it, if you don't know the true meaning of it in Scripture, when, when our 21st century Western Torontonian sensibilities hear that word, it, it's, it's, an, our, our, you know, it's just a bygone word and uh, uh, just a, uh, uh, even an oppressive word, but all it means is to change your mind. Be willing. Have an open-mindedness to make God now the center of your life. To come back to Him. To, to be willing to see your life through his eyes, and to see this life through his eyes, to acknowledge that he is the creator of this world, that there is a life after this life. There will be a kingdom of heaven. There will be a final new earth with God's government established, with Jesus as the king of all kings, the president of all presidents, the prime minister of all prime ministers, and he will be a good leader. And so Jesus begins preaching this and effectively now, he is saying with the fullest authority and capability. He, he, his, his, it's not an empty message. He is inviting the outsider in, and it can truly happen through him. I love what C.S. Lewis says. And C.S. Lewis, at least in, in uh, the past, say, 100 years or so, one of the, the best thinkers and just observing life, and, and he observed this. He writes this little essay called The Inner Ring, and basically to give you a little background, he says, in life, there are all these rings, and, and there's one inner ring after another, and we always want to get into the next inner ring to feel like we belong and have some worth, and so he continues to elaborate on that, and he says, I believe that in all people's lives at certain periods, and in many people's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring, whatever ring that is. It could be your sports club, it could be at school, it could be at work, it could, just wherever. Even in families, right? 
I'm trying to get into the inner ring of my wife with the kids. Right? The kids and my wife all have affection for each other. It's like, no, this is just, you know, uh, mommy and son and daughter time, right? And the terror of being left outside, that's what we're driven by, many of us. As long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You're trying to peel an onion. And if you succeed, there will be nothing left. Meaning, he's getting at, like, have you ever found yourself, you finally got in on the inside and then you realize, wow, this isn't what I thought it would be. I'm not getting the, the immense validation and sense of identity and, and worth that I thought it would be. And once you get there, you realize there's another inner ring. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. And so C.S. Lewis is saying profoundly, you got to just stand away, stand above that whole inner ring dynamic. And it starts with you. Something has to happen on the inside where you realize, I don't, my worth isn't defined by trying to get on the inside. I don't need to play this game. Now, I would agree and disagree with C.S. Lewis because ultimately there is one real inner ring. And that is the inner ring of fellowship with God. Because God is the ultimate reality. God is the one forever eternal reality. And even before creation, there was a beautiful ring, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But God, He's not the type of, of master that sets up this ring to make it difficult and to toy with people and to make you go through hoops and, and, and jump through hoops and do acrobatics so that you could get in. No, His heart is to want everyone inside as much as possible Yes, are there requirements to get in because he is perfectly holy and just and loving that we need to be of that quality as well? But he makes it possible. And that's why Jesus is so beautiful. Because Jesus comes from outside that ring, the Trinity, to this outer area. And he says, God loves the world, you so much that I'm going to become the one that can open up the door to that ring. And if you place your faith in me, if you are in union with me, then you are a fully bona fide. You can become a member of this beautiful fellowship of God. So let's try to make this practical. How do I overflow Christ's heart for the outsider? First, like Christ, be powered by his grace not works, okay? Don't make reaching out to people all of a sudden another notch to, to, to tick off, to check off, just another notch to put in your belt or another uh, rung to climb as if God loves you more. No, rest in his grace, be powered by his grace and reflect on this thought, because I'm first beloved by Christ, I produce good works. I try to reach out to the outsider. In Christ, I don't produce good works in order to be loved. We, we reach out because we were once an outsider, but no longer. How are we going to get to that? 
then daily, daily, we need to come back to this daily. Look into the face of Christ's steadfast love anew every morning and realize you're on the inside. Just place your faith in Christ again every morning anew. And just go to, out into the stressful world with this wonderful lens, this wonderful identity that you are His. And as the Song of Songs says, I am my beloved's and He is mine. And maybe that will take evaluating then your openness to new people with a desire to be stretched. Am I the quality of person that, that generally has a heart for the outsider? I tell you what, when I look back on my journey, my faith journey, one of the seminal moments was a church retreat for um, elementary age children. I just moved to Toronto, a brand new church. I'm naturally an introvert, even at that age. I believe I was six. And my parents, they shipped me off to uh, an overnight uh, camp retreat at six years old. And I remember when it was swimming time, the lodge was up here and there was this gravel road going down uh, and, and going to the beach. And all the kids were excited. They started running with their towels. And, and then I was trailing. I was last. And I was trying to be excited. And, and then I tripped. And I just ripped up my knee so badly, lots of blood. And I just seen the distance. It was so dramatic. It was just, you know, to see the group just going off and I'm just feeling more alone and but then, in the distance, I saw one person turn around. And then he started running to me. And to this day, he is a hero of faith. He, he's a, he should be in the hall of faith. His name is Young, And he became an older brother to me from that point forward. And, and he came back and said, are you okay? He was about five years, my senior. And, and he cleaned me up. And he just took me under his wing of that, for the rest of that whole retreat. And that was a seminal moment where I was an outsider and I tangibly felt, and I knew, looking back in his heart, just the whole environment there, it was in the name of Christ. It was, it was at a, it was a, a Christian retreat, and, and that cemented for me. That became an experience that reflected on even the greater heart of God to come from his ring to reach the outside and bring him in. And when we reflect on what Christ has done, ultimately, even more greatly, when we get to the place that Christ has done that for us, then how can we not pray, Lord, keep stretching my heart for the outsider, the once but no longer outsider. May this come true in your life. Amen.